You're listening to episode 9 of the Ecology Podcast. I'm your host, Arun Dainandan, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Charles Plazier and Kyle Grant. This week, we're talking about how we define a species and how that impacts conservation. So this week, we're going to be talking about phylogenies and how we define a species. The task of classification of organisms has remained a task a pretty complicated task ever since we humans began to group what we consider to be closely related living beings together. In the mid-1700s, Swedish botanist, zoologist, and physician Carolus Linnaeus wrote the system naturae, a, word, a way of organizing living beings into a hierarchical fashion. Combined with Darwin's mechanism behind the divergence of species, German biologist Will Hennig established the modern approach to hierarchical classification, which we call phylogenetic systematics, or the classification of organisms according to their evolutionary histories. Phylogenetics, or the branching relationships of populations, is based on the observation of traits displayed by an organism, whether that be an anatomical feature, a behavior, a genetic sequence, or a developmental process. These traits are important for two reasons. Firstly, the observation of traits can be used to infer patterns of ancestry, and secondly, we can study the sequence and timing of major events in an organism's evolutionary past. The main result of the phylogenetic approach to systematics is the creation of a phylogenetic tree, which is a branching structure that serves to hypothesize evolutionary relationships between organisms based on fossils, molecular data, and phylogeographic data. Basic trees are known as cladograms, while trees which show evolutionary change are known as phylograms, and trees which show actual time are called chronograms. Each branch tip in this phylogenetic tree is a group of related organisms, known as a taxon. Moving towards the base of the tree from those branches, the point at which a single branch splits into two or more recent branches is known as a node, and this represents the common ancestor for those two branches. The base of the tree is known as the root and serves to represent the common lineage from which all species in the tree came from. Once we pick a branch to focus on, we can compare our focal branch with other branches throughout the tree a number of different ways. An outgroup is a taxon related to, to our focal group, but, the branch, but that branched earlier in history. A sister taxon is a taxon which came from the same node. And Polydomy is a node from which more than two branches can arise from it, and a clade is a group of taxa that share a single common ancestor. A monophyletic group is a taxonomic group which consists of a common ancestor and all of its descendants, while a paraphyletic group contains the most common ancestor but not all of the descendants. Comparing between two different trees, we can find both rooted and unrooted trees. A rooted tree has a distinct common ancestor, while an unrooted tree gives multiple possible common ancestors. As such, an unrooted tree does not give a direction of time, and so we cannot tell which taxa are more recent than others. When placing a trait on a branch, we can compare between branches and hypothesize as to the evolutionary origin of that trait, as well as identify patterns in evolutionary time. A homologous trait is a trait which is found on two or more taxa because those organisms have inherited that trait from an ancestor while an analogous trait are traits which are shaped or rather shared by two or more taxa but did not come from that shared common ancestor and instead arose separately, such as through a common selection pressure. A trait which has come from another trait is known as derived, and so we look for shared derived traits when building evolutionary trees, and we're aiming to build trees that have the least number of evolutionary steps to get from one trait to the other. This is known as parsimony. However, some traits have no known current function, 
and despite being possibly important in the past. And we call these traits vestigial traits. There are two possible explanations as to why we see those vestigial traits today. The first is that the trait is not costly, and so it just sticks around without being selected against. And the second is that the trait is actually being actively selected against, and we're really just looking at an intermediate stage. So if we were to follow it one day into the future, that trait will be lost. Now, it's important to note that systematics is inferential in nature. We make inference on what happened in the past based on data that we can collect right now. This field of research can answer questions such as how we test homologous and analogous characteristics, as well as how we find the most likely tree based on our data. This information, when combined with geological and earth science research, can also tell us about how a group of organisms moved across the planet in the past, and this is known as phylogeography. Scientists are still at odds when it comes to dividing and deciding upon what constitutes an individual organism or individual taxa, um, and what we call that at the end of the day is a species. There are two modern species concepts, uh, and the first one is known as the biological species concept, and the second is known as the phylogenetic species concept. The biological species concept, as proposed by Ernst Mayer in 1942, dictates that two individuals are of the same species if they are able to breed and are reproductively isolated from other groups, which means that they cannot actually meet in the same area. The phylogenetic species concept, as defined by George G. Simpson in 1961, states that two organisms are from the same species if they have the same parental pattern of ancestry, that is, they come from the same lineage. Now there's a third type known as the evolutionary species concept, and this seeks to ratify the problems with both of the first two species concepts, but requires much more information than is commonly available in order to infer relatedness. And from moving from this, this different, different ideas and different species concept, Charlie, you've picked a pretty great paper uh, this week to discuss, and so I'll, I'll hand it over to you. Thank you. Um, I was kind of worried you almost sold my punch there, but it's not too bad. So the paper I chose this week was published in 2014 in the Journal of Zoological Systematics and Evolutionary Research. The title was Taxonomic Inflation, the Phylogenetic Species Concept and Lineages in the Tree of Life, a Cautionary Comment on Species Splitting, written by Frank Emmanuel Zako, Zakos. Sorry. As termed in the title, this paper was essentially a comment from a highly opinionated scientist who does not agree with the recent shift to the phylogenetic species concept, abbreviated as PSC, from the traditionally used biological species concept called BSC. As we know, the biological species concept, as Arun said, consists in species delimitation by successful interbreeding producing fertile hybrids. The phylogenetic species concept, specifically the diagnostic based phylogenetic species concept that was treated in the article and is called DPSC, focuses on delimiting species by assigning species rank to every population found to be diagnosably distinct. What does that mean? Diagnosably distinct is essentially a, gl a glorified way to designate a species based on observable phenotypic differences in different populations. Zekos goes on and enumerates several examples in which groves and grub, groves and grub, sorry, increase numbers of species in different taxa by significant amounts, even when they seem to be limited by very low sample sizes. Zekos then claims the issue of such an increase in species numbers causes more legal barriers when it comes to genetic rescue, as well as the devaluation of species rank as a whole. For the sake of context, Gross and Grubb are two scientists that published a book in 2011 called Anglais Taxonomy, 
with an introductory chapter describing the various theories of speciation, without failing to mention their bias for the phylogenetic species concept, of course. It's notably in this book that it increased the number of bovid ungulates by approximately 100%, something that Zekos termed as unfounded. Zekos followed with his perception of the shortcomings of the phylogenetic species concept to later admit that there is a non no there, that there are no non-arbitrary way of cutting up and captic lineage structure in the continuous tree of life. He later followed saying that while species must be populations and lineages, not all lineages and populations are and that despite the fact that lineages are philosophical individuals, the level at which lineages are considered species is a matter of delimitation. And with the anthropogenic fragmentation currently occurring, more of these lineages will emerge from a phylogenetic species concept point of view. However, later on, Zico says that diagnosability is exactly a hybrid between operationalism and ontology. Operationalism consists in uh, different ways we can actually test um, uh, where our species come from, and ontology, which would be the actual properties, observable or not, of a group of interest. And this makes it no different, essentially, this concept will not be no different from other species concept, like the biological species concept, and that a limitation must occur at some point down the line. The creation of discrete entities from the continuous evolution we are dealing with um, will, will, yeah, so there's, will We'll have to create discrete entities no matter what, even if we know as evolution is a continuous process um, to understand what a species is, we'll have to cut at a certain point, which will break the continuous evolution pattern. And then Zekos later on clarifies that at the end, there are definitely discrete entities in the world, but the limitation of these entities cannot be as clear cut as we would like them. So I found this paper pretty interesting to read, I have to admit. Zekos did hit many shortcomings of the phylogenetic species concept a few several times, making the paper slightly redundant, I found. Yet the point was made. The shortcomings of the phylogenetic species concept opens our, our eyes on the fact that there is no ultimate method to delimitate species as he mentioned. Blurred boundaries do not necessarily imply that lies what lies on both sides of these boundaries is but the creation of the human mind. It is important to understand the strengths and all all main species concept, the strain that we can find in all main species concept, such as the operation the operationalism of the phylogenetic species concept, the objectiveness of the biological species concept, and the ontological perspective of the evolutionary species concept. I found that paper at the same time a bit heavy and offer, unfortunately did not get all of the explanations given by Zekos due to our jargon dense text. I'm sure you will agree with me guys. And also concepts that seem very important, yet slightly were brushed over, probably due to the emotional nature of his article, including ex exclamation marks. And almost he was almost targeting Groves and Grub, as if they were in some sort of rap battle between the East Coast and the West Coast. Both scientists who are found to are fond of the phylogenetic species concepts are highly published, and I believe still deserve some sort of respect for their work. I believe Zekos could have mentioned what he what are the benefits of using the PSC instead of discrediting entirely that method, and hence also the work of Groves and Grub. Now um, I have a pretty interesting question, like so, some sort of a housekeeping question for both of you. Um, I feel like the author ended up describing the shortcomings of more of a typological species concept, and by typological species concepts, I'm talking about just looking at phenotypic 
differences between individuals of a population or between two populations to determine if they were uh, species, different species. And I wonder if we can even call groves and grubs approach as a phylogenetic species concept. Would it be a typological species concept instead? You know, because if we call it diagnosable, and if they're looking principally at phenotypes, like the Cliff Singer example in the article, where the new species was only based on differences in size and sexual dimorphism, how can we really say it's based on phylogeny and it's not only based on morphology or just phenotypes? So yeah, so the, the Clipspringer species example immediately sprung to mind when I read this paper. And, and I mean, I do have to say I agree with, with most of what you've said, Charlie. It, it certainly is a, a very emotionally driven piece, and it, um, but it does, I, in my opinion, cover the, um, the shortcomings quite well. And, and I agree, it could have covered the, um, the benefits of the, of the diagnosable phylogenetic species concept a little bit better. But but just returning back to the Clipspringer species, um, this idea of the of the I guess typological or I, I believe it's also called morphological species concept, um, at least it, with respect to the the morphology of the individual that they've looked at here, so the the, the size of the individual as well as the sexual dimorphism actually, um, it, it does it does lead to some other issues because when we're when we're subdividing these categories, especially I think they've said from one species to eleven based on just solely their size, we neglect, well, one, we, we, we run into issues when it comes down to similar, like cryptic species, for example, that, that look very similar to other species, but of course they may be reproductively isolated. Um, but we also run into issues of, um, of speciation that occurs due to, um, well, yeah, primarily that actually, I, I would, I would, say that's that's kind of my main concern there's a number of other concerns i can get to later but i think i'll i'll stick with the, the cryptic species angle here and i'll and i'll give it to kyle <laughs> yeah okay well i agree with arun so it's it's um you're looking at these morphological characteristics you're not really reflecting genetic differences between species and that's to me that's really what a, a phylogenetic species concept would be looking at um Another thing to mention is I don't think they entirely uh, dismiss uh, the phylogenetic species concept. I think it's really in the context of conservation that they're they're giving their argument. So, um, yeah. That's interesting that you brought up the conservation aspect, Kyle, because that was a bit part of my next question. Um, I do agree with you that um, he he pointed out that it was more of a from a conservation standpoint that the PSC was not the most suitable concept to use. Um, but I was wondering, do you think there's a a species concept in particular, or aspects of each of these species concepts that are essential from a conservation standpoint today? Yeah, I think um, I think it really depends what species you're looking at. So, I mean, applying one of these to everything. Um, maybe uh, the biological species concept is a good good one to go with. I mean, that's typically what's what what's used in conservation now, and it's because it tends to work. Um, there are exceptions, of course, but again, we have to apply these concepts in a way that's most efficient for whatever our goal is, right? So they're 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 kind of arbitrary distinctions. So the, the biggest factor is going to be, if it's useful to categorize something in that manner. I agree that the the biological species concept is important in terms of um, making decisions for conservation purposes. But I argue that actually the evolutionary species of co species concept would kind of encompass a lot of what we need here, especially when we're looking at the idea of lineages. 
Um, and they, they do touch upon upon this and some of the shortcomings, of course, of identifying species based on lineage. But when we look at the way that, for example, zoos are run maintaining stud books or any any breeding program, really, we, we do try to identify and, and actually, for, in fact, the information that we, we have is based on the lineages of the, inf- of the individual. So we also keep a pedigree. And I think that's something that I, I, I forgot to mention in the introduction. But the idea of, of a pedigree being the individual. Um, so while, while, a, while a, you know, our, our phylogenetic tree will look at populations and the ancestry of populations through evolutionary time, a pedigree will look at the ancestry of individuals through well, much, much smaller timescales. Um, based on parentage. So when we look at the way that zoos are using these stud books, um, so essentially these books uh, that that delineate individuals that are kept at the zoo based on their parentage so that they can breed them with other uh, individuals, the same species in other zoos, I think currently um, from from a, a, a breeding perspective, uh, the evolutionary species concept could uh, holds holds a bit of uh, of strength within that context. Now, when it comes to to conservation outside of the the realm of these zoos, I imagine something like the biological species concept would would come into play here because we don't have the same level of control over how we breed these individuals. Totally agree with that. Um, from a nature perspective, where we we're looking at conserving uh, different populations around the planet. Uh, I do agree that the biological species concept would be the most suitable and usable, like realistically usable concept to use uh, to delimited species. Um, now my question is, um, because he did mention about um, limitations when it comes to rescue of different populations. And if we think about large mammals that might um, uh, suffer from climate change a bit faster than smaller species, or even like smaller mammals, but just, you know, just this macro, the macro fauna that might... Uh, might react a bit quicker to climate change. Um, when we talk about from a when you think from a biological or from a rescue standpoint, um, if we think about like some European uh, ungulate species that are called that now will be um, seen as different species because of um, groves and grubs work, do we think that we it would be much better to apply the biological species concept to these populations, or and just bring them back into the same species so it would be, would be better to act upon these uh these populations i think um i think an important thing to factor into these concepts is uh the idea of gene flow so if there's gene flow occurring between populations i think we shouldn't really consider them a species because they're not evolving um there's, there isn't necessarily high amounts of the local adaptation taking place so i don't really see the value of doing that so i think including gene flow but also including a time component so how long has um, the group been uh, geographically separated how long has gene flow been prevented between these groups i think that would make more sense to me and that would be relative to each species or each population then because Right. Again, I think a mix of all these concepts would be important because knowing how long uh, two two populations have been isolated for uh, does not necessarily mean how long, like how much they've diverged since the separation uh, the separation event. So I wonder if, like, maybe for different species or different uh, taxa, it would be different timescales that would be necessary to consider them being yeah. apart for long enough, you know, to be different species. Yeah. 
and and especially i mean if we're considering in, in a conservation context again that we're looking at discrete units right so which species or which groups are worthy of conserva- uh, conserving then you know if, if there's a group that doesn't mingle with other groups and there's no gene flow well we could pretty much consider that a distinct group at that point and do we think a distinct group has to be a species because yes we did uh, um, learn biology with a biological species concept but is it because a group is isolated and there's no way of of having the gene flow with a different group that we have to call it a species yeah i don't think i don't think that's necessarily the case but i think um it is one of the criteria that's needed for speciation to begin, right? Or, or one of them. There's other ways, obviously. Um, and so if we're looking for a more, I guess, comprehensive um, method to use, which is, I'm assuming that's what the phylogenetic species concept's trying to do, I think this is a good intermediate um, between the, the phylogenetic uh, method and the biological species concept. I think it comes down to an issue of resolution as well. I mean, when we're trying to decide upon these discrete units, um, as you mentioned, Charlie, you know, this is kind of the, the paradigm at which we we study and learn these things uh, when we're doing our, our undergraduate degrees. And, and, and it's still the way that we communicate about a lot of these species, even the species that we're working on. We, we talk about them as individual units because of something that we can identify, that we can grasp. And... Um, and so when it comes down to, to the resolution of delimitation, you know, as you mentioned, Kyle, we could, in theory, consider a population which is you know, reproductively isolated, you know, geographically isolated um, from, from a source population um, as being an, an individual distinct unit to be conserved. But, and, and as you mentioned, Charlie, we, we need to look at how much divergence has actually occurred because, yeah, it's true that maybe it's a very new splitting, you know, a form of, of um, uh, a, a new geographical barrier that's caused this, this separation, or even a, a human, you know, human uh, barrier, such as a road that split these populations. Um, I think we also have to think of the idea of, of resolution on this delimitation. So when we're looking at divergence between a po- two populations, are we looking at how much the, the genetics have diverged? I mean, how different does one population's gene pool have to be from another population's gene pool? in order to be considered a distinct species at what point um at what point could we say that we need to preserve <laughs> this extended amount of variation versus letting go of that variation because you know we're considering this to be unique versus this to be you know commonplace that it might arise again or it just it's not important important to us so that's that's something that that comes to mind when we're looking at um Looking at looking at the application of, of these species concept to conservation when we're looking at in my in, in my mind the um, you know the, the DPSC diagnosable phylogenetic mm-hmm. species concept. Right, and it's gonna I mean yeah it's gonna the the resolution is gonna differ depending on what your goal is and what species you're particularly looking at. So yeah, I, I agree. Just in that situation when we talk about groves and grub and the book they published in 2011. I could I can speculate that their goal was probably to to um, document as many species as possible, you know, to, to increase the number of species depending on the, their separation and their the physical difference in between populations. You know, it's a bit that's a lot because we just take away all the possibility of plasticity or just adaptations to the to the environment to the 
local environment, which are things that could be very possible in the similar amounts of time between the two populations. So if we take individuals from a source population, we put it in the same population, they would be able to evolve the same characteristics in a few generations as well. Sometimes I, I wonder if, you know, again, as we, you mentioned, Arun, like there's a goal behind it. Then if the goal is to call, to delimit more to delimit more species, then it's going to be very easy to do it than using some diagnosable phylogenetic, phylogenetic species concept. But when we think about conservation purposes, um, is there a way you think that a mix of both biological and phylogenetic species concept could be even more useful? Let's say if you think about the molecular distance between two individuals or be, between two populations and the fact that they are able to reproduce and produce viable offspring and fertile offspring as well. So we use components of these two concepts, mix them together and say once these assumptions are met, then it's, we can call them similar species or if they're not met, if um, they either cannot reproduce together or there's a larger molecular distance than um, a plateau we, or than a value we assign arbitrarily, then it would be different species as an example. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of the, the current conservation um, conservation methods that we that we employ and already take into account the and, and, I, and Kyle, you kind of mentioned this earlier, the um, this diagnosable aspect. I mean, really, at, at least in my, my opinion, when I'm when I'm seeing this, this idea of a diagnosable phylogenetic species concept, really what it's just saying is, you know, an intermediate stage to an ideal phylogenetic species concept. So we have a, an ideal that we're trying to reach. Obviously, we, we can't always, that's, that's the nature of science. We can never collect 100% of the data that we need. We, we will collect some portion of it and make inferences on the rest. Um, so when I, when I see this, this idea of this DPSC, I, it just makes me, makes me think that it's, it's really, we already are employing, it that, employing that for conservation, but it's just that we're giving you know, what we normally would have called the phylogenetic species concept um, we're just now we're calling diagnosable species phylogenetic species concepts simply because we are um, you know we don't have 100% of the information but I don't think we've ever had 100% of the information so my my understanding of this is that we already are applying this this technique is just we're giving it a new name and do we like I'm I still have trouble understanding how phylogeny has something to do in the diagnosable phylogeny phylogenetic species concept. From what I've read, I mean, again, Zakos was a bit of a one-way argument in that you know that he was not giving the benefits of the, that model of that or that concept. So it was kind of hard from you know a naive perspective to read about the phylogenetic species concept or the diagnosable phylogenetic species concept, and and not think that it's only based on morphology. You know, absolutely. I mean, it looks like the ideas that they're they're mentioning here. Um, you know, they they mention uh, within the, the the first the first paragraph that um, that that grubs and and groves groves and grubs the um, they make that into a into a an acronym as well. GNG <laughs> have stated that um, that essentially they've they've assigned species rank to every population that was found to be diagnosably distinct and absolutely there's going to be this this I think this um, this prevalence of the morphological species concept in this uh, this diagnosability simply because maybe much of the research that's that's looking to identify and classify these organisms into different taxa is, is based on what we see. I mean, mm -hmm. it requires much more resources to sequence 
the DNA of, a, of an organism or and let alone an entire population to be able to identify a uniqueness. So just purely based on what we can we can identify with our with our senses as is without needing to extend them using technology. I think there's going to be an overwhelmingly large amount of of morphology based data simply because that's something that we can we can see and interact with, you know, as is without the the use of any additional technologies. But perhaps the idea of this this DPSC as opposed to the the typological or the morphological species concept is the fact that in theory it could also include other forms of of diagnosable traits um, that might not be necessarily immediately evident, but rather something that could be um, could be studied through through some more more um, more higher resolution means. I mean, I, for sure, I agree with you that the morphology is always a bit easier to study than anything that has to be sequenced. Um, but that will also leave us with uh, the question, the inevitable question of apomorphy. And if you don't know what apomorphy is, it's a, dev- a derived characteristic pertaining to a species and its descendants. But yeah, looking at maybe apomorphy versus plesiomorphy and um, how some species might develop similar adaptations or different adaptations to their local environment and essentially by being stuck with only a morphological aspect and being only able to look at the species and 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 what they did display um physically speaking then we are missing a lot of the information you know and again is it worth um, delimiting different species with the information we have or should we Accept that if we do not have enough information, then we are not we don't have the power to delimit new species. You know, because these scientists again they, they have lots of publications and they are very well respected scientists in their field. But does that mean that with low population sizes and and maybe even low evidence of true differences between these two groups, uh, they would still be allowed to call these two populations different species? And I, I might be repeating myself a little bit, you know, but I'm always stuck on on the morphological aspect of of that concept that will be prevalent no matter what, because I mean, as you said, Arun, the feasibility of anything else but morphology is much higher. You know, it's much higher to it's much harder to it's much it's much less feasible to to sequence DNA of different populations to confirm that they are actually distinct enough to call them different species. Yeah, and uh, conservation authorities are usually lacking funds, right? So it's definitely a more practical way of doing it. Um, so maybe that's that's like Arun said, that's why it's um, why they've chosen this as the uh, the method. I think it it also has to do with um, a little bit the into the history of these two the the two modern species concepts that we that we study the the phylogenetic species concept and the biological species concept because the biological species concept, while it came as an idea earlier by Ernst Mayer, it was fundamentally built on organisms that we see today, organisms that we can study, that we can understand their, their reproductive behavior and their habits. Whereas the phylogenetic species concept is much more, by, by Simpson, is much more um, popularized by paleontologists and those who look at the fossil record. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's, because we're studying these different, you know, you might be studying, we're studying at the end of the day, we're trying to limit life as it is, but we're looking at it from two different perspectives. One in which we can study living species 
and infer their, their relatedness based on what we see today versus another which can only be done through the, the remains of the organisms, which you know, is, is ultimately going to be primarily part of their morphology. Um, I think that that kind of is what what falls into um, th that kind of continues on as an issue with this this diagnosability aspect because you know one group would could argue that we could diagnose it based on things like behavior, whereas another one would argue that it can purely be morphology because at the end of the day, depending on the tax that you're studying, you know if we're for conservation, of course it it tends to be much more immediate because we're looking at at conserving species that are here today. But when we're trying to decide on, a, on an ultimate theorem at which we, we divide these, these organisms by, um, I think there, there's going to be this fundamental difference between are we basing it off of organisms that lived in the past of which we don't have that much data, or rather the data that we do have on their behavior and, and you know, non-morphology related traits tend to be already inferred based on, on morphology ultimately, um, or some kind of a, a physical trace versus the um you know the, the traits that we can actually measure today so i, I think that that kind of continues here and and there's ways that we can address that too we, we try to address that using distance-based methods mm -hmm. when we're uh, when we're generating these phylogenies so what we'll do is we'll we'll look for the least number of steps it's that that idea of parsimony again so we, we might say all the traits and say okay well what's what's the the least number of steps required to to include all of these traits into a into a phylogenetic tree um, and the assumption is that that will give us some form of an evolutionary path so that we're not looking at potentially related traits but looking at them as potentially you know plesiomorphic traits um, plesiomorphic of course being that they they come from different different branches um, when in fact they could just be part of a continuum along a, a specific axis of the, the phylogenetic tree, a specific branch. Um, so we do we do try to address this using distance-based methods. Of course, they do require information on the, the history and on organisms that, that lived before, but there's there's gonna be issues even with, with those kind of methods. So potentially that's the same same issue that we're seeing here with the, the diagnosability phylogenetic species concept. Yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, totally you can yeah. kind of uh, avoid that by just including the genetics, so. I mean, like, including uh, the, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, if you do like population genetics, you can like quantitative population genetics. We don't need to rely solely on morphology, right? It's just the the thing is, um, can we pay for that, right? Yeah. So absolutely, with populations, it's significantly harder. But what happens with populations that are either very hard to measure, um, populations that are made up of of primarily um, independently living organisms, so not necessarily group organisms. Um, or populations where the, the species is so the, the number of species in the wild are so low that we we can't really get enough data on their genetics to to identify a common common pattern. Um, well, I mean, if that was the case, then we wouldn't really be that worried about it, right? You know, if the populations are very small, then we can just, I mean, even doing morphological characterization is not necessarily going to work, right? It's the same. It's the same issue either way, whether you're using genetics or not. In small populations, the characterization can be done, but you know, it would not have much power, and it would be kind of hard to believe because the sample size would be so low and could just be based on physical differences, you know, genetic, genetic differences. Um, and 
And you know, I, again, like to go back on what you were saying, Arun, um, looking at populations today, it will many more ways to measure them and to see the differences between populations that we can with with former populations with their ancestors. So what we would see was just be these evolutionary trees that would branch out into so many branches all of a sudden because we started using different concepts halfway through, you know, and that makes it kind of complicated again to to know the true evolutionary history if we decide to turn 143 bovid species into 240 something, you know, or 270 something. On this, by snapping your fingers just because you're changing your system. So again. We we have to see the the reason behind every species, um, or besides like the reason behind every delimitation we're doing. You know, from conservation perspective, is it necessary to have more species or less species, or or is it more important to have more species depending on what we want to achieve from that conservation initiative? So it's again, it's really really related to what we want to achieve personally with all these species, these populations. So my my fear with that that the almost infinite amount of subdivision that's possible with these species that there's especially with especially with something with like conservation where we're relying on on public support for a lot of these programs <clears throat> my my concern is that when we start communicating our, our conservation initiatives and we're, when we're communicating the science itself and we we begin to divide these things based on on traits that the that the the general public might not be able to necessarily identify. I mean, we already do that to an extent with, with genetics, though I think more and more people are getting a better understanding of of genetics and and what genes are. Um, and and I mean, you know, for for individuals outside of outside of the sciences, um, I guess one of my fears with with this infinite subdivision is that in fact by doing that we end up maybe even creating a sense of apathy amongst individuals who are trying to to conserve. Because if one day we're saying, you know, there's uh, four species of, of tiger and we need we need your your help. And if you just, you know, spend X amount of money, you can you can protect all of them. And then, you know, a year later we say, by the way, there's, you know, 23 different species of tiger and they're all under problems. Um, and then the next year we say, you know what, actually there's 40 different species of tiger and they're all under, you know, under some form of issue, some form of conservation related threat um i i my fear is that this would begin to erode public trust in in conservation um initiatives and and their effectiveness and create a sense of apathy amongst people when they're when they're trying to decide where to to invest their resources in 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 one of these these um these organizations um so that that's something that also I find concerning when we when we begin to divide these species on what is essentially an arbitrary line, um, but when we start to use lines that aren't immediately um, obvious to to the public. It's exactly what I've been thinking as well. Um, the point of classifying species is just for our own understanding of the biological world and and the more species we're adding to the list of conservation uh, to, of uh, species that are important to conservation, the more complicated it's going to get uh, for everyone. Exactly. So um, what that, that that's that's a question we have to be asking ourselves now when we're trying to to make these new lists, these new updated lists of species. Do we keep what we have? Do we drop down to less species and just call them as a big group or we just stop focusing on species and species will just be used by biologists to 
to in their articles and then we, we just focus on bigger groups or bigger classification uh, levels you know, that's that's the only way to actually keep the the interest of the public in there you know as the Zacho said in the paper you know we, we're just devaluating the cost of a species by adding so many numbers from one day to the next I mean he mentions this idea of, of blurred boundaries and, and you you um you you mentioned this when you were introducing the paper the this idea that just because they're the boundaries are blurred between what we call you know species one and species two doesn't mean that we don't feel that there is some difference you know no one's going to argue that a kangaroo and an elephant are the same thing um right we, we know that you know regardless of how we decide to to divide our species you know we still feel like there's some some difference there i mean it's the same idea with the kangaroo and a wallaby you know both are very similar but we can see this you know we look at a swamp wallaby and we look at an eastern gray kangaroo, and we can see there is a difference between them. Um, so just because those boundaries aren't there doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Um, and and so from there, that that makes me wonder. Well, then, you know, as as you mentioned, and, and and kind of what I was touching upon before, if if ultimately the the information that we're conveying and and what we're trying to do is is tell someone about what this thing that we're studying is. If the line is so small that it really doesn't make that much of a difference, well, then is there even a point in drawing the line there? I mean, ultimately, this is a human construct, right? The way we draw our lines, the way we draw the lines on a map. You know, sometimes we can look at a map and say, yeah, this is this is Canada, this is the United States, and this is Mexico, and you know, this is France and Spain and China and India and Australia, and you know, that's just a discrete unit. But then we what we really look at, I mean, if you removed every line, right, from a map. You know, that's the Earth. Ultimately, that's what we're looking at. Um, but then we we draw our own lines. You know, then we say, okay, well, this is a group of of individuals who live under these set principles. This is a group of individuals that live under these set principles, um, and we draw these these lines based on on those those ideas. Um, and in fact, one could argue that that you know maybe we're politically very similar to the U.S. compared to another country in the in the world, such as China. And so. If we were to redraw the map, maybe there's many ways. If we were to remove every line from a from a map of the Earth and redraw these political boundaries based on, you know, on on different ideologies, on on religion, on um, you know, different economic economic um, economic styles, um, one could say there's many ways to draw draw the map of the Earth as well. So, but ultimately, the whole point of drawing these lines is to communicate to someone else that this is a this is one place and this is another place. So perhaps it's the same idea with these species. When we're trying to draw these lines, we just need to be able to communicate them. I mean, of course, conservation is is an issue, but really, if if the public, if the, if the person <laughs> that's funding the research and the person that's funding the conservation initiatives couldn't tell the difference, then maybe there's no need to draw that line there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think you're you're kind of hitting on what we talked about at the beginning. It's it's essentially these, since they're arbitrary, these classifications, they really have to be um, adopted in cases where they do give value to a goal that we're trying to accomplish. Otherwise, like you said, they're just arbitrary and it doesn't have value to the public and it doesn't have value to us, then why are we using them, right? Yeah, I mean, the, you, you hit the spot on as well. I totally agree with that. You know, it's, again, these boundaries we're making and looking at the political example you gave, you know, you can see that the political views of, of southern Canada and, and northern U.S. Are, are very similar. Whereas if you go to the extreme of these countries, then it's going to be very different. 
and we do see the same thing with species you know the blurred lines are blurred lines for a reason and delimiting them is not very useful but when it comes to acting upon these species individually then it's important to know which species we're talking about so i think this is just again using lots of manpower and knowledge for something that's not as important um conservationally speaking so actually, I want to bring up this idea of, um, and, and they mentioned this in the paper, this superiority based on testability. And I'm curious as to what your what your guys' thoughts are on this, because there's this idea, and I think this is pre- prevalent in a lot of different fields, not just not just biology, but um, in, in in the humanities and in the arts. You know, there's this idea that if we can test it, it must, you know, the the method that we use to test it is somehow better because of, again, we can quantify quantify this. Um, and as scientists, we are obsessed with this idea of quantifying, quantifying the world around us, because that's how we communicate to each other that this is something that we've studied. Um, now, now, how much someone quantifies it di- you know, differs based on their own personal experiences, their own personal interests. You know, a physicist can quantify something in a very different way than a chemist would, and a chemist would would quantify something in a very different way than a biologist would, all the way down into you know psychology and the arts and 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 different aspects of um, of of you know, this, the, the way we understand the world around us. So, and 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 we end up seeing this this superiority idea kind of coming a little bit sometimes, especially I think under undergraduates. I think we can all agree here that we were in that that position at one point in time where. You know, we everyone thinks that their science is is the best science and explains everything perfectly. And of course, the more you more you learn, the more you realize, like, no, no, not really. Um, the answer is always math, right? Um, but yeah, so 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 when when the the author here mentions that it's this supposed superiority based on objective testability turns out to be an illusion. Uh, do you guys agree with with this statement that that there is in fact no um, that there is no superiority just because we can test something, or do you guys believe that um, that there is there there is a a hierarchy in the way that we study the world, and there is a bit of a there there are better ways to explain things than others? Yeah, I don't I don't think there's superiority, but I do think it, like in this context for the paper, if you're presenting it and something that you want other people to use um, and and essentially apply to conservation scenarios, there has to be an objective way of doing that, right? So I think that's that's probably more what the author's getting at. Um, You know, you you can't throw something out as like, okay, this is the best way of doing it, but then you don't have the guidelines on on how to do do it. It, it. To me, it just, I think he's just calling out maybe some bad bad communication on the other author's part. I also think that, you know, you said the example of every science, thinking their science is the answer to everything happening in the world. But I do think that sometimes science as a whole is the answer, you know, in this example. Because, like, in biology, we, we are using physical laws and math, mathematical laws, of course. And to, as Kyle said, to get the objective aspect of it, to have it, uh, done repeatedly the same same way by different scientists. You you do you need an objective part that will include some mathematics or something that will be applied as laws or as theorems, and that will not change from one study to the next. That way, these findings done by one group would be as repeatable as any other findings we we do in science. And the situation with this article is that I found that it was very subjective because. 
dumpling species by traits that you choose to look at or that you have the funds to look at makes the whole thing not as repeatable anymore. Because if you get, uh, I don't know, a hundred times larger funding for the next study on the same species, then who knows, we might find something totally different and your cost of a species for, for this group of Clipsinger might be very, very different from what Grows and Grub found just because you had more funding. I do think we need a bit more of math and a bit more of testability. And I do not think that the phylogenetic species concept is as testable as they claim it to be. Uh, by when G and G spoke about it in their book. Yeah, I mean, definitely not as testable in a in a morphological way. But um, but yeah, I think if with if you use a genetic basis for this, it becomes a lot more. Um, a lot more streamlined. So when we're looking at the idea of, of using genetics for these conservation initiatives and, and for delimiting these species, one can make the argument that what we're really looking to do is save genetic variability, right? We're looking to save as much of the population as we can simply because we can then bring back a population using the variability because as well as the fact that maybe that population is better able to handle more, uh, more environmental variability, more environmental variation. And, and can in fact, you know, fill an ecological niche that opens up that it might not have originally, at least in our moment in time, been a part of, but eventually um, became a part of in the, in the future. But my my question regarding this, the genetic idea is, well, what if we have a population where in fact the genetic variability is potentially even less than what it was historically? Um, I don't know if this is exactly the case, but it... Um, but, you know, I, I, I'd have to look more into the literature to see if, if this is what's happening. But when we look at dogs, domesticated dogs, or I guess any domesticated animal, if we were to use the morphological species concept, we would say that every breed of dog is a different species, right? A pug is not the same as a bulldog, is not the same as a husky, is not the same as a golden retriever, right? They look completely different. Their temperament is very different. Um there's just there's behaviors there's a lot of differences that we can see that if we were to use the their um you know the, the the typological morphological species concept we would have them completely separated now when we look at and when we use the biological species concept well we know that all these different breeds are able to breed with each other so in fact they they can produce offspring um now the question is though can we and and the other the other thing too is these are all derived from the wolf, right? And the wolf, and, and I, I'm not sure, I believe the wolf and dogs are able to, to interbreed as well. Maybe some dog yeah. breeds are able to and others can't. I'm not sure the, the exact where that line is drawn. Um, so if we're looking to, to preserve genetic variation, right, um, do you think that domesticated dogs have more variation as a group than let's say wolves? And if that's the case, are we, if we want to save wolves, should we also be saving domestic, like, you know, our, our pets, our dogs? Yeah, I think I think it's the examples. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it gets difficult because the thing is that variation you're seeing, phenotypic variation in the dogs. Essentially, you can look at those dogs as population islands. Gene flow has been restricted artificially between those groups. So, yeah, we can we can interbreed them, but if you put that into a natural setting and you see that kind of phenotypic variation. That's likely because there's there's reduced gene flow and perhaps those those populations won't ever uh, breed with each other again. So uh, I think uh, I think it's it gets hard when we're looking at it 
I think it, it, the example makes makes the question a bit harder. I mean, talking about barriers, you know, um, different um, groups will be termed species, different species, just because of the different barriers they're facing. Could be a ecological barrier where they are just will never meet because of their location, but it could also be a behavioral barrier. And as you call, as you you said, Kyle, even if these species don't have the physical potential to to reproduce, they would never reproduce in the wild because let's say you're talking about a wolf that can potentially uh, breed with a chihuahua, but we'll probably not breed with it because we'll probably eat it alive. And the wolf would do that with many types of uh, domesticated dogs because they just have they don't have any any behavior in common at this point. They're so different behaviorally speaking. Um, so this is some sort of barrier that would come into play and would make them different species. But then if you look at them as fossils, if you don't have access to their behavior or their or even yeah, even anything else, but just their morphology, then a wolf and a husky or a wolf and some other domesticated dog that's a bit of a larger size that's similar to the wolf would never breed together in like in this day and age, but could probably be seen as the same species if you just have access to their bone structure and their morphology. Mm-hmm. So again, it's just, you know, it's, it's very, there's no right answer to this question. Um, and for every case, we'll have a different answer and a different way to assess um, how to to delimitate the, these species. But I don't I don't think it's as like it's as necessary to have a standardized way of doing so for every group because every group will have to be seen differently depending on their attributes. And it's like talking about uh, microbes and bacteria and how do we delimit these species? You know, we cannot talk about sexual reproduction first off. So then we have to look at other things. We have to look at the genetic basis of, or on the genetic background of all these organisms. And then how do we delimit these species if they're not alive at the moment? That's another question. Well, certainly I think there's this, I mean, you just mentioned with, with bacteria. I mean, there's another another kind of level of, of complexity when we're looking into how we delimit these species because how do we decide on on what species at a, at a microbial level when we know that bacteria engage in horizontal gene transfer? That's they essentially have these packets of, of genetics that they can share between each other with not going from one generation to the next. So, you know, if, if one one individual bacteria has a resistance to a let's say an antibiotic, within the same generation, it can pass that that resistance to all the other bacteria that's around it. Um, and so, and, and you know, the genes associated with that. So, if we were to look at a, a population of bacteria, we may be very difficult because even different species or what we might call species. Um, as an analog to species, the OTUs um, in bacteria, well, they wouldn't really be considered considered back you know different species either because they're, in a sense, they are exchanging genetic information. It's just that they're exchanging it within a single generation as opposed to from a, from a parent to an offspring. So I don't know if, if we could call those those individual distinct species either because I mean the, the morphology can be completely different on these guys, right? Yeah. So there's all sorts of 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 very and then the colony morphology there's all these these different ways that that if we were to look at it it would come out as one species but if we were to look at it from a genetic level well it, it starts to get very 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 messy um and so that that kind of brings in the idea of of you know species that reproduce asexually as well um and and there's much larger species that can reproduce asexually 
um, so so that engage in, in parthenogenesis. So rabbits, for example, will will do that. Snakes, many reptiles, fish as well. Um, right. And and also individuals that are are, are clonal, clonal individuals. Um, yeah, I mean, well, usually with bacteria or, or microbes, they're not referred to as species; they're referred to as as strains, right? So it's within the sort of context of what environment you're looking at. That's that's how you're going to build these phylogenetic trees. Um, I'm not really sure what what you mean by um, by asexual or, or clonal. How that I mean, maybe you could explain that a bit more. How how does that blur the lines? Well, if we're looking at it from an idea from a, from a diagnosability perspective, right? And we want to maintain these lineages. How do we maintain a lineage in an organism that's that's cloning itself? Because there's it's it becomes very difficult to identify parent from offspring. Um, normally, we can there's this you know there's this prevention of inbreeding depression, which is why we can see these different generations and and they don't breed. Um, they don't breed together simply because, you know, potentially after one generation of, of interbreeding, they're sterile. They can't, assuming they produce offspring um, that can survive, they, the offspring oftentimes cannot continue having, having young. Uh, we see this with our guppies, for example, where if we let them breed for more than one or more than two generations from, um, from a wild population, they tend to get uh, spinal problems and, and various deformities. So their fitness is decreasing. But in an asexual species, the fitness is not decreasing when they're when they're breeding. So it becomes difficult to say what the actual lineage of the organism is. Um, and it also becomes harder to say whether it's when it's diverged because we lose that idea of a lineage. So that's I think that that's what I was getting at when I said that it's a little bit blurrier and messier when we're looking at these these asexually reproducing species. Yeah. I, I mean, I would just treat them as the same lineage. I mean, if they're genetically the same, then then why like I, I don't yeah i don't know i guess i'm i'm still not really getting it well at what like, point did they, they diverge well you you would see if they were diverging cuz the genetics would change right if you're looking at well you say you go and you you you're testing the population and you see that they're all identical well that's just that it's they're the same lineage so there's there would be no need to treat them as separate species if you go and you and you see oh there's this this other one over here and it's completely different then maybe you can make an argument right oh i agree with within a certain population that's that's i think something that that i could i could see being you know a delimiter but when we're looking at how species change over time essentially we're looking at a single large population right that's splitting constantly so when they when these these individuals the only real source of variation for for an individual that reproduces asexually, um, clonally, is is essentially mutation. Mm -hmm. So, at what point do we say enough mutations built up that we can say that this is a separate species? Because the species is still reproducing on its own, so it becomes very difficult for us to say, okay, we need to conserve this this species because we don't know necessarily what is required. You know, what what is the ideal amount of variation? Because even the smallest genetic mutation can be considered, in theory its own species because they can all if we're say following the biological species concept because they're you know they can well they're not breeding with one another but they are reproducing yeah um, right so it's almost like you can have one mutant and that have, that could be considered a new species exactly that's what gets yeah i see what you're saying yeah yeah i mean sense. looking at bacterial strains and you just bring them in a different different 
environment, that one mutation can make a whole difference between a uh, bacterial strain that would never grow in that medium, and then the one strain that has a mutation makes it in that medium and becomes a new species because it can go through, I don't know, thousands of generations yeah. and proliferate in that medium. So again, like if if you get to to change the environment uh, of the of of two different uh, populations, then that could lead to that divergence we're talking about. But if you keep them in the same environment, then it will just be mutations. But since it's reproducing, it's essentially the the genetics would not really change, or like the genetics as a whole would pretty much stay the same. But it would just change through time for in the in the group. So I think it would uh, require some divergence or some 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 splitting of the these strains to see if there's actually a new species emerging. So that brings me actually to another thing that they they bring up very very quickly in the paper. They actually kind of just glaze right over it. They mention the word but they don't go into the idea. Um, this idea of, of temporal variation when, when limiting a species. I mean, can we can we say that it's that something is different because of a of the way the population was at a certain point in time. I mean, if every moment in time is a snapshot, at what point can we say that you know spe- this is a species and this is a species and this is a species? Because we because we're looking at let's say you know reproductive isolation based on geographic barriers. So that's a spatial spatial isolation. But where do we draw the line for temporal isolation? Since evolution is occurring on a on a continuous scale, where can we say that okay, well this is now kind of with the asexual example. You know when we say okay, there's this many mutations is now the you know, the point at which it's a new species. I mean, when can we say, I mean, do you think it's even possible to say through through even a single lineage where one species starts and another one ends? I mean, I don't think there is a way to, to, to say it, essentially, because the, the species will be changing with mutations and with adaptations to the environment it's facing at the moment. So I think it would, would not make sense to limited species especially in that one lineage depending on time so the temporal variation for me is just not a really interesting argument and the fact that he did not even dev- develop it in his paper just makes it not even necessary to include in that paper in my opinion I, I, i'd say temporal variation wouldn't actually matter because basically how we're how we're describing species is based on differences between groups right so but those, it, those it's, groupings it's with, in time yeah, would but occur uh, with the information that we have, as opposed to what was the the real situation. Right, but yeah, I, I guess what I'm saying though is that without a reference point, you can't actually distinguish whether something is a species or not. So, say you take one group and you're just looking at that. I mean, maybe that's not what you're saying. Um, could you explain again? Well, I'm thinking more in, in terms of of the fossil record. Right. I mean, we have we can never see every species as it once was. We can see snapshots and and, and various species along the the same line. Let's say, you know, we we go over to the um, you know, go over to Drumheller in Alberta, and and we decide, okay, we're gonna dig up some some dinosaur bones. Well, we're we're really looking for a specific time in history, and we might find, let's say, we find a dinosaur, um, like an Albertosaurus. You know, we find one of those guys, his old you know late Cretaceous predator. And it, te- it, you know, it, we can see, okay, well, this, this is an Albertosaurus based on these morphological characteristics. It had you know, the, these, this number of fingers and this length of, of teeth and the shape morphology fit, you know, was a little bit more stout, that kind of thing. But ultimately, we're only saying, we're looking at a single individual and inferring on the entire population. 
Um, now, in an ideal situation, we might go to somewhere like La Brea Tar Pits and we see, okay, well, here's some Pleistocene. We were looking at you know, an entire population, presumably, of, of um, Smilodons, you know, as they try to hunt this mammoth that had fallen into the tar pits you know, in, in what is now Los Angeles. And, you know, over time, this, you know, what happened to Libre Tarpids is the, you know, a mammoth gets stuck in tar, it starts screaming for its friends, Smilodons hear this, and they all go and try to eat the, the mammoth, they fall into the tarpits, they all die as well, the tar preserves their body. So we can see, okay, well, over, let's say, the course of, of however long it took for this mammoth to die, every Smilodon that wound up in that area is, uh, is part of the same population. You know, let's say it took three days for the mammoth to die, well... Now we have to assume that any any smilodon in a three in whatever radius it would take for a smilodon to cover, you know, for three days, is all big part of one big population, and they all fall into the tar, and they're all one thing. So th and that's a better situation where now we can say, okay, we have a ton of individuals, um, but ultimately we're still looking at a very specific snapshot, right? We can't. We might say it's you know we're looking at a population that spanned from a week. We might say we're looking at a population that spanned a year or five years, whatever that might be. But we can never see it from a continuous point of view. We can only infer it. Um, so so I guess what I'm saying is when we're looking at it from a temporal perspective, I mean we're right now we're deciding you know this is a species and this is a species and this is a species simply because those are the fossils that exist. That's what we have available to us, and that's we haven't found anything in between and. You know, presumably we would find something that that's in between and say, okay, well, this is also a species. And we would just keep doing that for every single group of fossils that we find. Um, but the reality is that there were many intermediate steps along the way that we may or may not know, find or we may or may not even consider to be the same, the same species. Um, again, because we don't know what the reproductive habits were. We don't have their genetics. Um, so... You know, when we're deciding on, on delimiting species based on a temporal scale, I mean, I think it is a very important thing that we have to look into simply because we, and maybe not from a conservation angle, but when we are designing these phylogenetic trees based on uh, an evolutionary lineage, well, we, we need to know where we're drawing the line because some of what we might be calling separate species might, in fact, be the same same species. And you think these transition states or these intermediate states between species uh, could be dated, and this could answer a question on whereas where 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 whether they are uh, different species that were at the same time, or same species that was just into some intermediate stage from one to the next. I think it's it, the problem we have with with dating things in the past is very much like the problem we have with forecasting things into the future. I mean, the the older and older our fossil record, you know, our fossils go, the harder it becomes to actually identify. You know at what portion in, in history this existed so you know as our techniques get better and better i think we might we might do better at finding uh, or rather at dating these these different organisms but right now we're dealing with such large time blocks you know we we, we can say okay well this species lived between you know uh 45 and 65 you know million years ago but that's a massive amount of time, right? I mean, that's simply because we found a fossil that's in the geological layer that showed, you know, where everything was at 45 million, and we found a fossil at 65 million. We're saying, okay, well, it must have existed from here to here because that's what we found. Um, but it's impossible for us to really know. I mean, what's the lifespan of a species, really? Right. I mean, I, I mean, you're getting back to the the kind of classic thing where if you aligned every common ancestor that's ever existed 
and you looked across one generation, at no point would there be a generation where something changed to another species because it's completely continuous, right? So it's only with those temporal gaps that we can actually define uh, species on an evolutionary timescale. But those temporal gaps are very much a human construct. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. Uh, I agree, and that's kind of the point I was getting at is is when we're when we're designing these trees based on on spatial scales, we can talk about uh, about the spatial division between populations. But you know, when we start including these evolutionary lineages in the way that we're we're defining our species, um, it becomes I mean, almost impossible because how can we ever really say that something is part of a single population? Um, and and I mean, this idea of division again, it it brings up another another um, another point that I, I think will be interesting just to to touch upon. It's you know earlier, Charlie, you mentioned um, you know that with the dogs, for example, that perhaps if we were to take some of these dogs and and put them out in the wild, well, they might not they won't get they won't breed because they'll just get eaten by you know, like by, let's say, the wolf. Um, now, when we're looking at, at humans, you know, we, we call ourselves, we are all homo sapiens. We're the same species, presumably. Um, and yet there's this geographical isolation for thousands of years between different populations. And we see, we see you know, different populations of humans with different um, different adaptations to different kind of environments, whether that be, you know, from a, a tropical rainforest or a desert you know, the production of melanin, the retention of melanin, um, the loss of melanin, um, things like, like hair, for example. I mean, certain traits have been have been sexually selected for, other traits have been selected for because of the environment, for, say, vitamin D synthesis, whatever it might be. Um, so we, we see these differences in, in human beings. So from a morphological perspective, we, we see these differences. And, and it actually, in fact, it, it kind of, it reminds me of a quote that's usually attributed to Aristotle. Um, and so Aristotle was was big on 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 dividing these different these different organisms. And at the time, you know, they were trying to define what makes a human human. And so he said that, you know, man is essentially a featherless biped. And one of his contemporaries later on went to a crowd and said, you know, t- pulling up a, a chicken said, behold, here's Aristotle's man, you know, or, you know, feather, oh, it's a yeah, feathered biped. Um, and, uh, you know, it was essentially, it was a chicken with no feathers. Um, so, so there's this, this kind of hilarious way of, of identifying, of, of, you know, what is a human being. So if we see from a morphological perspective, a lot of these different populations look very different, whether in skin color or amount of hair, hair color, whatever it might be, you know, height. Um, and we know we can all breed with each other, but they've been geographically isolated for thousands of years. Can we decide that that these are different species based on the populations because they may never come into contact with each other? Can we also say that they're different species simply because maybe the the they can't even communicate? Maybe maybe not maybe less so nowadays, but if we were to go back, let's say a few hundred years and we and we find some of these more isolated populations that if if one population can't communicate with the other population, and assuming this is the the deciding factor as to whether or not they'll have children, though of course, as history has happily shown us, and anyone that's done the the, the 23andMe study can see, sometimes language barriers does not prevent children from happening. Um, but assuming that's that's a, a barrier, you know, a cultural custom or a language, um, or even just just in the in the idea of, of selection, 
can we say that different populations of humans historically are, are were different species? This question just shows how the whole species idea is a human construct that's almost unnecessary. Um, just because what what would be the point of of calling each of these groups species if from one I don't know from one century to the next we have that whole global the globalization happening and then we are able to speak the same language we're able to communicate in some sort of way we're able to reach each other so like the isolation that we we were we, we were facing is not even a thing anymore so now are we back to a single species whereas in the past we were not a species we were several species so like for me just that example which is a good example just shows how it's a matter of of perspective and of convention more than anything it's, again, the thing, the species concept, it will be different for any group just because of that, just because of the ability of that group to meet the other group and to actually get back to that similarity in the group. You know, if there's, <laughs> you can you can reduce the variation between these groups just by mixing these groups together and letting the mm-hmm. generations flow. And are they really distinct species? Or so again, like this, this for me, it's so just an, an example that we we have to apply these concepts. Um, for each group differently. Well, yeah, I, think I think if... Sorry. Go ahead. No, go. Okay. After you, Kyle. Oh, I was going to say, I think it, it just comes down to gene flow, right? So it, at a point, there was less gene flow and local adaptation was starting. But uh, again, like Charlie was saying, once you homogenize the group, then then those characteristics balance out and you get back to what you could consider one large population, right? Absolutely. So one could say then, you know, if we were to to do the same type of division, uh, I don't know, eight thousand years ago, we could say that that we were all different, different, um, different species, simply because at that snapshot, it was an example of allopatric speciation. There was a geographic barrier, and we were separated based on on cultures and 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 uh, and and just behaviors and and just the time scale upon which some left. Um, Africa and others others stayed behind or stayed stayed within the the continent, um, but then now we we repeat the same study today and with globalization, well we've lost that that barrier and it's no longer an issue. And if we were to move even forward, if we were to say send people to to Mars or the Moon and establish a colony there, you know, given a number of generations with a lack of gene flow, could we then say that that the the first generation born on Mars are Martians? and not not humans because yeah, I, we're, we're limiting the flow right yeah again depends what concept you're using so if you're saying it's just purely an ecological species concept where it's you know that geographical isolation um then you could say yes but i think if you're applying more of an evolutionary or phylogenetic concept then it wouldn't be the case unless there's changes in the genetic frequencies that are you know, very distinct from any other population. Well, when we compare, say, Asian elephants and and African elephants, I don't know if they can breed with each other. But, I mean, from a morphology perspective, one would think that, yeah, perhaps they could. Um, So so when we're looking at at these species and what we call species today, I mean, there, there must be many cases of species that are separated by these geographical barriers, but simply, you know, they just never come into contact with each other. But if we were to put them together, they would, you know, create offspring that are, are viable. 
So what? So at what point do we say that the species concept that we're using is just a snapshot of the time that we have, versus something that's actually defining the individuals that we see in the world around us, or the populations we see in the world around us, rather? Which concept? Uh, well, I, I imagine it would be the well, even the biological species concept. Right. So so we're seeing this with like polar bears and grizzly bears, for example, right? It's you know they they were distinct populations, but now with global warming they're they're inbreeding or sorry inbreeding is the wrong word they're hybridizing um and so now do we consider them to be the same species or are they still two separate species it's again like you said it depends what time scale we're looking at so i mean in that way maybe that's that's a a good argument for the biological species concept right it, it ensures that there's been enough time for speciation to get to a certain point where the two populations are no no longer viable. Um, so I think it, it it kind of intrinsically introduces a, almost a time component into the uh, the concept. So for this, you do require the splitting and then the time between the splitting or after the splitting to obtain these new species. But at the same, you know, it's interesting because how how different genetically speaking are these two species of bears now you know and is that difference like what is the genetic basis behind reproductive isolation you know can we link the two and say that a, a higher extent of genetic differences between two populations will translate into these this reproductive isolation that applies to the biological species concept do you think there would be a way to link the two together you know, and I, I would expect the answer to be very different from one group to the next. Again, you know, the temporal aspect is super important, but then each group will need different amounts of mutations or differences between their gene gene pools to 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 have to have them separated or isolated reproductively speaking. Right, and and even the environments and the selection regimes that they're under, those are also going to influence how quickly that local adaptation occurs. How quickly they can become reproductively isolated. So an, another factor to add to that. So we've just uh, we've we've passed the hour a little bit here. Do you guys have any any final thoughts about this paper or, or the ideas that we've we've spoken about today? Yeah, I think uh, just like a bit of a take home would be that these species concepts they're they are pretty much arbitrary and they should really be applied in a manner that's useful for whatever goal you're setting out to achieve. So I think. I think that's a good way of looking at it. I mean, exactly what I would think about saying, Kyle. Um, now I have a question for both of you. Would you say growler bear or pizzly bear? Um, <laughs> I'll stick with growler. I stick with growler just because it sounds better. Yeah, yeah, I'm a growler guy too. I mean, it, I mean, yeah. I feel I feel bad for the poor polar bears. I mean, they're <laughs> gonna be. Not only are we are we completely removing their habitat but we've essentially decided to say you know what they're kind of the same as as grizzlies and brown bears anyway so let's just you know they don't actually matter anymore anyway but certainly that's not what we're saying i mean again it's it's as as zakos mentioned just because the the lines are are blurry doesn't mean that we can't intrinsically feel that there is something there whether that's from an aesthetic perspective or from a from a, of a, another scientific perspective, based on the way we're measuring and quantifying the, the variability and, and, the, and dividing the world around us. So perhaps that's what Robin Thicke really meant about blurred lines. <laughs>